from the Bible passage in Matthew 18. It'd be great to have it open, Matthew 18, and those last six words. Forgive your brother from your heart. Forgive your brother from your heart. That's our focus today, those last six words. Forgiving our brother or our sister from the heart. And that's a tough assignment in many ways. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And uh, we know what he's saying, don't we? We'd all agree, I'm sure, that forgiveness is a good thing, a necessary thing, even a lovely thing. Yet it's a hard thing too, isn't it? Uh, the, The movies that we like the best are often retaliation movies, revenge movies. We love to cheer the victim who gets to pay back the evil done to him or her. That's far more instinctive to us, really, revenge and retaliation. And the thought of other people getting away with something by being forgiven, it troubles us, it makes us angry even, it disturbs us, especially when we're the ones who've been wronged. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Well, you know what, according to Jesus, it's more than a lovely idea. It's actually the very character of his kingdom and it's a necessary virtue of every single one of his subjects. And of course, every single person in this room has been wronged and all of us have something or someone we need to forgive. And if that's not true right at this moment, it will certainly be true by the end of the day. So let's pray and ask uh, for the help of the Lord Jesus and for his guidance as we consider this together. So how about we talk to him in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to come once more before you and your word and to have you speak truth to us. Thank you, Father, for your word in the way it so clearly and wonderfully reveals your will to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of this word and uh, brings it even to us this day. And Father, as we come to think about forgiveness, we confess that this is often a difficult topic for us. Father, there are people in this room even now who have both great and small things that have been done to them that have been wrong. And Father, we want to understand more clearly and more deeply what it is to be a forgiving person. And Father, in the cloud of emotions and uh, different thoughts that perhaps are swirling in our minds even at this moment, we want to pray that you'd help us to hear you clearly that in hearing you we trust your word, trust your son, and that we would obey him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, all through uh, January we're looking at uh, parables of the kingdom of heaven. And the parable that we're looking at today that um, was just acted out for us actually comes in response, you, you would have noticed, to a question from the Apostle Peter to Jesus. Point one on your outline, it's an unforgiving question is what I've called it. And have a look at verse 21 with me of chapter 18. Verse 21, 
Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? It's a pretty interesting question. Uh, it's interesting too to uh, ponder the motivation of Peter. You know, why did he ask that question now of Jesus? It's interesting to notice too that he assumes that he has to forgive. And he's right. He has to forgive. In fact, earlier in the gospel, back in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has already taught the necessity of his people forgiving one another. Peter understands that. He knows that he must be a forgiving person, but his question is really, how forgiving should I be? How forgiving should I be? If a fellow believer wrongs him, okay, he's got to forgive him, but what if the believer wrongs him again? The same wrong, the same person, and then again the same wrong and the same person. How many times is forgiveness to be offered in that sort of situation? And we know where Peter is coming from, don't we? Same person, same wrong, same sin. The wives know what Peter's talking about. Husbands know what Peter's talking about. Children know what Peter's talking about. Parents know. Workers know. Anyone who has friends know. We all, we all know what Peter's talking about. We know where Peter's coming from. Same person, same wrong, same sin. How forgiving should we be? What's the cutoff mark? Where, where is the line in the sand? At what point can we say, well, okay, sorry, enough's enough now? And Peter does more than ask the question, doesn't he? he? He even helps Jesus out by supplying the answer. See there, verse 21, up to seven times. How many times must I forgive up to seven times? And I'm not sure, but my guess is that Peter's aiming high. Apparently the rabbis of his day had debated this very question and they'd come up with the answer of three times. So Peter's being very generous by that standard. Um, Perhaps Peter wanted to impress Jesus with how forgiving he, should, he could be. Maybe he's expecting Jesus to reply, well, gee, Peter, that's, that's excessive, really. Come on, that's way too much. You know, you're obviously a really forgiving sort of person. Seven times. To be wrong by the same person in the same way seven times and still be prepared to forgive, I mean, that's magnificent, isn't it? It's astonishing. It's incredibly forgiving. I think that's... Exactly the way we think. Although perhaps we might not be as generous as seven. I suspect often in our dealings with people we may be tempted to withhold our forgiveness much earlier than that. We often think like that, but that is exactly not how Jesus thinks. And folks, I need to say, if you're here this morning and you think that to forgive someone, same wrong, same person, seven times... If you think that is enough, you have no understanding of the kingdom of heaven. Check out verse 22. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. We need to feel the impact of that answer, friends. Seven times. No, 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 Peter, not seven times. 77 times. And if you're thinking, well, what if you lose count about 74? You've missed the point, haven't you? You've missed the point. Because Jesus isn't challenging Peter's counting. He's challenging his heart. And it's to drive home that challenge that Jesus goes on to teach a very vivid 
and I think potent parable. So point two, a forgiving king. Let's have a look. Verse 23. Jesus goes on, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. So there we have it. The main characters are introduced. A king is a master. This is character number one. And this is character number two, a servant with a massive debt. And this is a truly massive debt. As Jesus told this parable, when, when he would have mentioned uh, the 10,000 talents, there would have been a sharp intake of breath, I'm sure, among the people listening to him. 10,000 talents. The talent was the biggest currency of the day. You couldn't have a bigger note in your wallet than a talent. And 10,000 was the biggest Greek number. 10,000 talents. In Jesus' day, the regions, the states, if you like, of Judea and Samaria and Idumea, they together, they paid a combined annual tribute to Rome, okay, of 600 talents. 10,000 talents. It's an immense figure. It is a breathtaking debt. This is a billion dollar debt. And this debtor is brought before the king, owing a billion dollars. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all they had be sold to repay the debt. Now there's no way that selling them and the family and and everything they owed, there's no way that would settle the financial debt, but it might have satisfied the king's anger and his honour. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. He begs for mercy. He offers to pay it back, which would be impossible. And the master takes pity on him. The master shows him mercy, and he cancels the debt. Now, if there was a sharp intake of breath at the mention of 10,000 uh, 10, talents, there would have been an even sharper intake of breath when Jesus said the debt was cancelled. Who's heard of a king cancelling a debt? He chooses to accept nothing from the servant. He wipes the slate clean. A billion dollar debt. What? Now, friends, there's there's much about this king that is not like God. In Jesus' parables, generally, we don't have to match up every detail in the parable with some spiritual truth. In fact, if you try and join every dot in that way, it'll often lead to error. But in this essential characteristic and action, we find the king in this parable truly representing the Lord God. Because you know what? Incredibly, incredibly, the Lord God of the Bible, the true God is the God who cancels the debt his people owe him because of their sin. And this is not some billion-dollar financial debt. This is far bigger than that. This is a spiritual debt because of our sin. The Lord God of the Bible is a God who cancels the debt of his people. And, of course, that's precisely why Jesus, the Son of God, came. In the Gospel of Matthew, this very Gospel, in the very first chapter, the angel of the Lord, you might remember, told the embarrassed and ashamed Joseph that the child that his fiancée carried in her womb, it wasn't the product of any immorality. 
but in fact was of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph was told to name the child Jesus. Why Jesus? Because the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And the angel told him that Jesus would save his people from their sins. The Lord God is a forgiving God. In this very chapter, chapter 18, if you look at the very beginning of the chapter, just glance at it, Jesus has already taught that his father in heaven is like the shepherd who, though he owns a hundred sheep, would leave the 99 to pursue the one lost sheep. That's what he's like. He's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. And of course, if we were to keep reading Matthew's gospel on from chapter 18, we'd read of Jesus the night before his death, sharing the Passover meal with his disciples and then taking a cup and saying to them, this cup, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then we would read of his saving death in which he, the innocent one, the holy one, the son of God was crushed for the sins of the guilty, in which he was pierced for our transgressions. And that on that cross, the punishment for our sins, our debt, fell on him so that the peace of forgiveness might flow even to us. Friends, we must understand that on our own, we are in debt to the Holy Lord God. And as stupendously immense was the debt of the servant in this parable, our debt to the Holy Lord God is infinitely more, infinitely more. And we have no hope, absolutely no hope of paying off our debt. The debt of a life of rebellion and sin, the debt of a life of spent spitting in the eye of God. How could we possibly pay that debt? Even if we live the perfect life now, that would not undo the damage that we've already done, the disrespect, the dishonor that we've already brought him. And if the fate of this servant in this parable was awful, if we would fear a life of being sold into slavery, again, that is nothing compared to the everlasting fires of hell, the utterly just and terrifying wrath of God. See, friends, these are not pleasant things to talk about on a Sunday morning, but we need to understand. We need to grasp with absolute and solemn clarity that if God were to send you and if God were to send me to hell for the rest of eternity, that would be utterly just. It would be morally right. It would be perfectly fair. No one could point to God and say, you've done the wrong thing if he sent you to hell. If he sent me there. That would be right, fair, just. But here is the wonder of the message at the very heart of the Bible. God offers another path, another way. God in his mercy offers the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus through his saving death and resurrection. And it's not earned. How could it be? It's not deserved. 
And it can only be obtained by humbly laying aside all other claims and begging God for mercy. Humbly handing over our wasted life to the glory and joy and satisfaction of service in the kingdom of God. Folks, that is how anyone enters the kingdom. There is no other way to enter the kingdom than that. The only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is through the doorway of mercy and forgiveness. And it's a blood-stained doorway. It's stained with the blood of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is a gathering of forgiven sinners who have had their debt wiped clean, their billion-dollar debt wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. And friends, if you were here today, I need to tell you that doorway remains open even to you. The burden of the debt to God that you owe, the burden of sin and guilt that you carry, it can be wiped clean, you know, can be lifted from you. Jesus, even at this very moment, invites the weary and the burdened to come to him and he promises Rest. Rest for your souls. It's an astonishing promise. One that many of us here today have found to be true. We've tasted it, we've found it to be true. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a pearl of great value. It's the rest of forgiveness. And it can only be found in Christ Jesus. Come to him, that's his call. That's his invitation. You enter through the blood-stained doorway of mercy and forgiveness and you enter into nothing less than the kingdom of heaven. And you may do that even as I continue to speak. But of course, you know what? Having entered the kingdom of heaven that way, having tasted the soul-satisfying forgiveness of God, well, that changes someone, doesn't it? Changes the way we think about ourselves, changes the way we think about others. And that's the warning as Jesus' parable continues. Point three, an unforgiving subject. A third character you see is introduced to us now. Another servant who's in debt, but the outcome is disgustingly different. Verse 28. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who offered him, who owed him, sorry, a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. And instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. If we were playing the game, spot the difference, there'd be two big differences to stand out, don't you reckon? Firstly, although the uh, second servant is in debt, his debt is much smaller than servant number one. He only owes 100 denarii. Um, That is, to switch on your mathematical bit of your brain, that is 0.00002% of the debt that the first servant had cancelled. It's the first difference. And it's that difference that makes the second difference so disgusting and despicable. The forgiven man could show none of the mercy that he had received. He had had a billion dollar debt cancelled 
And he would not cancel the $20 debt that he was owed. That's how the numbers stack up. A billion dollars and $20. He couldn't do it. And it's so obviously wrong, isn't it? As we listen to Jesus' story, it's so obviously wrong and despicable. We almost want to cheer as Jesus finishes the parable. Verse 32. So the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. And we agree. That's wicked. He said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And we say, yes. And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And we almost want to cheer, don't we? I say almost because I wonder if our cheer might be choked off by Jesus' final words in verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The question then becomes, are we that servant? Peter's question, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Seven times? It's ludicrous, isn't it? If we had any idea of the extent to which we'd been forgiven, if we had any concept of our billion-dollar debt that's been cancelled at such immense cost to God, if we had any concept of the extent of the forgiveness we enjoy at the gracious hand of the Lord God, any thought, any thought of us somehow, somewhere, having some sort of reason that we might be able to withhold forgiveness from someone else, despicable it's disgusting having entered into the kingdom of heaven through a blood-stained doorway of mercy and forgiveness it is inevitable it is inevitable that we too will be merciful and forgiving and if we're not then we've not entered we could not have entered through that doorway into the kingdom of heaven and be unforgiving we must still be outside the kingdom why in his famous kingdom prayer back in Matthew chapter 6 Jesus taught his disciples to pray like this forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors it's why immediately after teaching that prayer Jesus went on to say for if you forgive men when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive men their sins your father will not forgive your sins your father will not forgive your sins Friends, the kingdom of heaven, okay, is inhabited by forgiven people. And forgiven people, truly forgiven people, are forgiving people. It's not that we earn our place through being forgiving. It's not that we we lose our place by being unforgiving. But if we hold on to an unforgiving spirit, if we are people who hold grudges, who withhold forgiveness, who abide in unforgiveness... We do not trust Christ. We couldn't trust Christ. Because if we belong to Jesus, we walk as he did. How could anyone with the spirit of Christ in them abide in unforgiveness? That would be an impossibility. We might drift in and out of unforgiveness momentarily, but to abide in unforgiveness, we could not. We could not have the spirit of Christ within us. If we belong to Jesus, we could not possibly accept his forgiveness of our billion-dollar debt and withhold it from a $20 debtor. 
Couldn't do it. And that's the consistent testimony and call of Scripture. Ephesians 4 verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3 verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As forgiven members of the kingdom of heaven, we will forgive one another. We will forgive one another from our hearts. And so let's close just by reflecting a little bit more on that. Let's reflect a little bit on forgiving one another from the heart. Point four on your outline. And let me say, because forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have to forgive someone, the first thing we've got to do is pray, don't we? Because forgiveness comes hard to us as we continue to struggle against our old, defeated, sinful nature. Forgiveness and a forgiving spirit are spiritual values that we must ask our Lord God for. As we seek the Lord's forgiveness each day, we must also ask him to make us into forgiving people. Pride, resentment, malice, greed, anger, slander... All such things must be put to death. They have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And so we must pray that God might work in us what is pleasing to him. And I've got a feeling he'd answer that prayer, yes, don't you? Make me a forgiving person, Father. And then, of course, we need to understand what forgiveness is. And I I think I personally find it helpful to think about what forgiveness is by thinking about what it isn't. To forgive someone from the heart will mean that you will not seek revenge. It is not seeking revenge. It is not seeking payback. We'll not seek to repay evil with evil if we are a forgiving person. In Romans 12, Romans 12 has lots of great wisdom for us in this whole area, and I'm going to refer to it a few times. Please look it up later. Um, Romans 12 verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That person who has wronged you, you are not to seek revenge on them. You are not to seek payback. You are not to anxiously anticipate something bad happening to them down the track so that they might know what it's like to be you. To forgive someone from the hearts will mean instead that you seek their welfare, even from a distance perhaps, but you will seek their good, you will seek their blessing, you will not seek harm to come to them, you'll seek their blessing. And so again we read in Romans chapter 12 verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Not cursing, blessing. And as a result of that, of course, we will pray, won't we, for the person who has wronged us. Jesus in Matthew 5 taught us that to be people who pray for those who persecute us. So we pray that God might transform them. We pray that God might bless them. We pray for their welfare. That's the character of someone who forgives from the heart, you see. 
to pray for the person who has wronged us. And of course, we will seek reconciliation with them. Again, in Romans 12, we read verse 18, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. To forgive someone from the heart will mean that you will seek peace with that person. You will seek reconciliation. Now, at this point, I know the question arises for us, but what if that person doesn't want it? What if that person refuses to acknowledge they've done wrong? What if that person refuses to repent of what they've done wrong? And I know that's a real question for us. But before answering it more directly, can I quickly say, if the reason that springs into your mind is is that you're looking for a loophole in order to get out of forgiving someone, then you're completely at odds with Jesus, aren't you? We mustn't be looking for an escape hatch to get us out of having to forgive someone. Because as forgiven people, we will be forgiving. We'll be looking for reasons to forgive, not the other way around. But having said that, it's true in the Bible, repentance is clearly important. Immediately before our passage in Matthew 18, um, Jesus has been teaching about what to do with an unrepentant sinner. And where there is no repentance, increasingly more serious measures are taken, uh, finally than being expelled from the fellowship. Repentance is obviously important. However, there are lots of other passages in the New Testament that speak of forgiveness where no repentance is mentioned. One I mentioned earlier from Colossians, bear with each other, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. So even where there is no repentance in the other person, our heart should still lean toward mercy. We should be willing to forgive. We should have a forgiving spirit. We're not seeking their harm. We're seeking their good. We are praying for that person. And it seems to me that two things, I guess, that count, that that help us through this. The The overarching principle is love for that person who has even wronged you. And it means that where there is no repentance, well, there can be no reconciliation. You see, when someone wrongs another person and yet refuses to repent, refuses to admit wrong, even if there is forgiveness available from your side, without repentance from their side, there can be no restoration of that relationship. There can be no reconciliation. Something very tragic has still happened. But in one sense, you know, as the wronged person, their repentance is not your responsibility. Your responsibility as a, as a person forgiven a billion dollar debt is to forgive the $20 debt of your brother or sister. And look, don't hear me saying that somehow forgiving one another from the heart means that somehow sin becomes okay. Sin is never okay. It's still right to be angry at sin. Forgiveness doesn't overlook the evil of sin. Sin is always wrong and offensive. And sin must still carry with it consequences. And forgiving someone doesn't mean that you don't somehow excuse them from the consequences of their sin. In very serious cases, of course, forgiveness, you can still forgive someone and still see them prosecuted for their evil. We, we, we can't be simplistic or silly about these things. But the, un, the overarching principle is we act not for some sort of uh, revenge motive. We act for their good. 
And sin sometimes must be punished and disciplined for the good of the sinner. That's our motivation. Bottom line remains, as forgiven members of the kingdom of heaven, we must forgive one another from the heart. No grudges, no resentment, no seeking revenge, no payback, no slander, no malice, no talking about them, but instead love, blessing, prayer, peace, and where possible reconciliation. Because folks, the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of forgiveness. And this church family, Morning Church, should be a church family of forgiveness because you will inevitably wrong one another. I don't know why we get surprised by that. You'll be wronged by people in this church family. Of course you will. And you will wrong them. Within your marriage, you will wrong one another. Within your family, you will wrong one another. Within your household, you will wrong one another. But if you are a forgiven person, forgiven of the immense and eternal debt of sin, you will forgive one another from the hearts. Because the language of the kingdom is, I forgive you. That's not the language of our world, is it? The language of our world is revenge and retaliation. But the language of the kingdom of heaven is, I forgive you. It was the language of our king. He spoke his word to you. I forgive you. And it must be our language to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are filled with thanksgiving as we think of our debt cancelled. And even as we've tried to ponder how immense our debt is, Father, I'm sure we don't grasp it fully enough. I'm sure we can. And I want to pray, Father, that for each of us we would spend the rest of our life trying to understand more clearly and more truly how much we've been forgiven. And Father, as forgiven people, please make us forgiving people. We thank you for the spirit of Jesus. We pray, Father, that he would do his work within us, your work. And Father, may this church family be a, a church family of forgiveness. And Father, help us to hear the warning of Jesus this morning very clearly very starkly. And if even at this moment, Father, we are holding out forgiveness from someone, perhaps even in this room with us, convict us, Father, of the seriousness of that and help us to act. We don't want to be people of revenge or bitterness. We want to be people, Father, of, who seek blessing, who love our enemies, People of love, Father, where love covers over a multitude of wrongs. We want to be like Jesus. Please answer our prayer. Amen.